This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and it is number 11 of the series entitled Truly Furnished. We will read for our lesson the second epistle to Timothy, chapter 4. Second Timothy, chapter 4. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itchy years, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Take Mark, and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to thee for the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou where also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, or my first defence, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me, and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Salute Prisca and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Pudence, and Lydus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. The last words of any man are of importance and some measure of solemnity. These are the last words recorded of Paul, the Apostle of Jesus Christ. He was looking down the age and seeing the day would come when you might preach the word to deaf ears or ears that would turn away or ears that only needed to be tickled. The great temptation is to yield to the popular desire and turn your back upon that which is the Lord's will. 
In this endeavor to help those of you who are speaking and preaching and teaching, I lift out a few features from the example of the Apostle Paul. You do remember that there is one word which is translated once pattern and once form. He says about his own conversion and his life that he was a pattern. That's in First Timothy. He says, hold the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. That's in Second Timothy. Same word in both cases, pattern or form. So that we have a method, that's the pattern of the man himself, and the matter, that's the words, the doctrines, the teaching that he has passed on to us. While I was away on holiday, of course, you've only got to say, give me a, a hinch, and as the man said to the, the village man said to his parson, he said, if I give them a hinch, they take a hell, excuse me, sir. But, um, Naturally, somebody raised the question, oh dear, here it comes, uh, you've written a booklet on hell. Yes. All then they wanted to know all about it. So I said, look, the Apostle Paul has been given to me as a pattern. And I have to hold a form of sound words which I have heard of him through many witnesses. And this man said that he was free from the blood of all men, for he had not shunned to declare all the counsel of God. Now I said I read through 14 epistles written by the Apostle Paul and a number of his gospel addresses. And he only mentions the word hell once. But then of course the person may say, oh, but if you read what he says about hell, it'll make your hair stand on end. So I said, let's read it. And this is the passage. O grave, where is thy victory? That's the only reference to hell in all the witness that God has recorded of this man's testimony. And he said he was free from the blood of all men, for he had not shown to declare all the counsel of God. I said, you don't think I'm going to worry what you think of me. I'm in that good company. Now, if you'd like to bring in Matthew 25 or all these other passages where it speaks about hell, fire, and apply those to some poor sinner today, you do it on your own responsibility. But I can't. doesn't belong to me to say that. And that's what I would enjoin upon you who are listening. You want to keep things in their context. And the Apostle Paul is a God-given example. He dares to say, follow me as I follow my Lord. And he does it by the, by the allowance of permission of God who inspired him to write. So we're making no apology for that. We're only putting it forward as something which is tangible and definite. Now with regard to the matter, well, we've got to read his epistles over and over again and it's a wonderful depth and a marvellous height. We know that. This afternoon I'm dealing rather with his method because method is very important if you're wanting to preach or teach so that the subject matter will be understood and you will gain and keep the attention of those who are listening to you and you may be blessed in persuading someone at least to give an ear to what the scripture says. We don't want to spoil the wonderful truth by our own inability or slovenliness. 
You remember in Nehemiah they, they, they explained the word. They read the word of God distinctly. They gave the meaning. They were doing all those things so that the word of God at least should get a hearing. What now the apostle has used the word preach, used the word teach, and other words which have to do with the opening up of the scriptures. Uh, shall we follow his example? Shall we look at some of these passages so that if we uh, have to do the same thing, we will at least know what is expected of us? And you who are listening to me in this chapel, you are being very patient and very willing to let me take these subjects which may not be of great importance to you so that others in distant lands and elsewhere may get the benefit of our study. Now the first word for preach is the one with which we are mostly accustomed. It is the word evangelizo. Evangel. And if we say, if we take the EV away and the little ending, we've got the word angel left. That is the stem of the word, angel. And an angel is not only a spiritual power, but is essentially a messenger. Would you like to get that in a reference to Matthew 11, verse 10? Matthew 11, verse 10. He's speaking about a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Now, John the Baptist wasn't an angel, not in our sense of the word, but he was in this sense of the word, that an angel, whether it be a spiritual person or whether it be an individual like you and me, is one who is bearing a message. We don't invent the message. We, we may not even know the full depth of the message. If you lived in a very country village, or if you've listened to Dylan Thomas, you'll know that the local postman and their wife, they steamed them open and sat and discussed all the village before they delivered the letters. Oh, that's all right if you lived in that village. But we can't do it. We may, we may be bearing a message which contains something that we ourselves do not understand, but we mustn't alter it or hold it back because of that. We are delivering as messengers the message which God has entrusted. And of course, the more we understand it ourselves, the more we shall be able to interpret it to those who might ask us. But in the first case, we are messengers. That is the word. Evangel is one who brings a message. We find that it is, um, uh, take for instance 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, another way in which this word enters into the, into the story, the makeup of the word. 1 Thessalonians 3, but now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that ye have good remembrance of us always you see you couldn't hear say of course in the ordinary run but now when Timotheus came from, unto, came from you unto us and brought us the gospel of your faith and charity but that's the word gospel good tidings G-O-S-P-E-L, Saxon word, God's spell. The word spell meaning something that is a message and I suppose eventually becomes our word spelling. It's something that God has written and sent. So it's good tidings and here it's good tidings of one to another. 
And God's good tidings are entrusted to his messengers. And this office of evangelist, which embodies this word, is a part of the gifts of the ascended Christ to the church today. Will you look at Ephesians to get that? Ephesians 4, verse 11. The ascended Christ, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers and these focus on this for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith so the apostle is necessary the prophet is necessary and they did their work because in chapter 2 the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the evangelists and the teachers they are the subsequent builders that go on until the end of time there are no apostles today given by Christ. That was a foundation ministry. There are no prophets in the full sense of the word today. But there are those who are teachers and those who are evangelists who carry the work on until it reaches its conclusion. Well then you remember that in writing to Timothy, the apostle said to him, Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. So Timothy was entering into this calling he was a successor of the apostle, you see, but he wasn't an apostle himself. The two that come at the beginning are inspired and they have no need, as it were, for a book. A prophet can stand up and prophesy without referring to a book necessarily. And the apostle had full power. But he was followed by one on a lesser plane. The evangelist is the echo of the apostle and the teacher is the echo of the prophet. And so in the last epistles, Timothy is not called to be an apostle. He's called to be an evangelist. And he was to see that the, the word, the truth that had been entrusted to him should be committed to faithful men who should be able to teach others also. Well, we must leave that one because there are uh, many others to uh, consider. Uh, but I think one is asking for a little comment and that is the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, verse 35. Where we have this word to preach. Here's a man reading Isaiah 53. And he's puzzled. And he asks. He wants to know who is the subject of Isaiah 53. Well, if you ask that question today and take down commentaries, you'll get a variety of answers. You'll have Hezekiah, or you'll have the nation of Israel themselves. But this man, this evangelist, this speaker, he said, it says here in verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Well, that's one of the evidences that we get from the New Testament, that the Old Testament is full of witnesses, types, shadows and prophecies concerning the one whom we delight to call our Saviour. So that is the first word in the ministry of salvation, the pointing of the sinner to the Saviour. It is this word evangel, evangelizo. But there's another word translated preach, which doesn't mean to bear a message in the same sense. And that is the word I'll give you them so that you may look them up at your leisure. Kiruba, Kiruso, and Kirux. 
you could hear that they are variants of the same stem. Now, they all mean a herald or an act of heralding. Uh, the herald had an official place in the Greek sports, and when the Apostle Paul said, uh, as I think we ought to get the context, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he's speaking about the sports and running the race, He says in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9, And know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have heralded others, when I have announced their names in public, when I have declared before the judge who sits upon the beamer at that race course that this was a free man who had not been known to have indulged in evil, that he was a, a man who was fitly qualified to take part in the sports, after I have heralded it, all that, I myself may be disqualified, not cast away. Oh, there's many a person that thought that it meant that the Apostle Paul may lose his salvation. He says, I may have announced this about others, but if I do not conform myself, I should be disqualified. Uh, the word is, uh, co- the word is contained in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God. Dokimeso. So it's not to do with being cast away from salvation, but disqualified and not approved afterwards. But there was the herald. And when they spoke of a herald, it not only meant heralding an emperor and heralding a king and saying that this was the new king to sit upon the throne, but it's also heralding the name of those who were entering into the race. And so the apostle uses that term. And... Um, I'll give you one example. You need not turn to it, you'll remember it, you'll notice it. Matthew twelve forty one. Jonah said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, he wasn't preaching uh, good tidings. There's no good tidings in Yet forty days Nineveh shall be overthrown. He was making a proclamation. Of course, the Lord in his mercy overruled it. And they repented. And Jonah was a bit upset because the Lord repented. He said, 40 days and this enemy of us will be overthrown. And now he said, I knew you'd do that. He said to the Lord, I knew you'd do that. That's why I ran away. Because thou art merciful. But he was giving a proclamation. Now the apostle uses that expression. Will you turn to 1 Timothy, chapter 2, 7. This is not the word evangel, this is the word to herald. 1 Timothy 2, 7. Uh, verse 5. For there is, oh, thank you, that's right, Mr. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in, in due time whereunto I am ordained a herald, a preacher, a herald, and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Here the man is emphasizing. He almost takes an oath 
that this is his calling because he was so criticised. He was not merely a preacher bringing a message, but he was a herald making a proclamation, whether you would hear or whether you would not. So you'll not be at all surprised, will you, to turn the page to 2 Timothy 4, to discover that when he says in the last days, they will not give a patient hearing to the book. He uses the word herald. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead and his appearing in his kingdom, herald the word, preach it, not as an evangel, but a proclamation, whether they will hear or whether they will not. And that is the character of a proclamation. And you will find that Noah is said to be a preacher of righteousness to a wicked world that wouldn't listen to him. He was a herald. So there is two aspects then in preaching. One, you are seeking the salvation of the sinner. You are uh, coming with the message, the good tidings of great joy to all people. But on the other hand, you may have to stand up and say, whether you believe it or not, this is what God has said. And you hope that even that attitude may be blessed of him as it was in the days of Nineveh that some were brought to repentance even though they were not invited so to do. Well now time is moving so we'll come to other aspects and this time we'll look at Paul's own method. Will you turn to Acts 17? The 17th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and rise again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. There we have a little example of the way in which the Apostle himself, his manner was. Now notice it says he reasoned. There are some folks who fight shy of the word reason. And from one point of view, it's right to suspect mere reasoning. Not because reasoning can ever be anything but right, if it's true reasoning, but because our minds are alienated and darkened. And so we, we have neither the correct premises nor the right method of reasoning. But you must never imagine that God is unreasonable. Or may never imagine that truth can be other than logical. Otherwise the whole thing would collapse, you see. So that the trouble with us is that our premises are so often incorrect. You know what the premises are. It's not the building in which you live. It's the actual statement upon which you're basing your argument. Of course, we use the word for premises in the sense of a place you occupy. And there is a, a little joke spoken about the Abedonian professor who with a friend was walking through one of the narrow alleyways and two women were arguing the point across the alleyway and he said they never agree that they're arguing from the same premises. See? Now, we haven't got a bother about our premises. They're here. Every word in that we can base all our argument on without suspicion. So then we've just got to see to it that our reasoning is logical and you can't, you can't avoid the conclusion. If I say, I take the stock argument, all men are mortal. 
Socrates is a man. You can conclude that, friends. You think be a logician. If all men are mortal, and Socrates is a man, then Socrates must be mortal, mustn't he? There's no escape from it. But look, supposing I put it this way, all men are mortal. Jesus Christ was a man. Wait a minute now. I can't go on. There's something that compels me to go back and say, you're wrong in your premises. Now I'll put it this way. All men descended from Adam are mortal. Now, Jesus Christ wasn't descended from Adam, so I've got to change it all. It's valuable to be able to do that. So the apostle reasoned out of the scriptures. Three Sabbath days at it. Oh my, there was a proper ding-dong there, I reckon. Backward and forward, backward and forward, everlastingly turning them to the book and saying, as he did, proving that this is the very Christ. You remember, as soon as he was converted, in the same chapter, two or three verses, he's converted from a Pharisee to a simple believer in Christ, and he confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Why? Well, he'd got the book in his heart and mind that he didn't know, and the moment his eyes were opened, he could turn into a chapter and verse and say, that is so. So he was reasoning out of the scriptures. You have it again in verse 17. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Disputed. Argued. One person said to me, I don't believe in argument. I said, I know that without you telling me. Because he simply meant arguing was sort of having a row. But the argument is the very essence of reasoning. That's the argument. And here was this arguing and disputing and reasoning with the word of God before these people. And it's actually translated preach in Acts 20, verse 7. You might like to get that passage. Acts 20, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And you know what happened. But that was nothing to do with reasoning. This word preached, here is the word disputed, or the word reasoning. Not the word evangel, not the word kirugma, or its verbal form. So you see, and writing to the Romans, he said, your logical service is to present yourself as living sacrifices. It's a logical outcome of the truth you've received. So while you don't trust in your logic and your reasoning, never forget that once you've got your premises right, once you've got the book in front of you, then you've got a basis upon which you may build an argument that will stand. Now there are many other passages, I must leave them for you to look up and we'll turn to the other one. We're back again in Acts 17. Verse 3, opening. Opening. Well, we get the emphasis upon opening in many passages, uh, Ephesians 6.19. Ephesians 6.19. Just the fact that he uses it with regard to himself. And for me that utterance may be given unto thee, that I may open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel. He uses that figure more than once, to open his mouth. And the one that I think we must turn to, if we omit all the others I have listed here, 
is the last chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. The last chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. And here we have our Saviour. He's, he's talking and walking to men whose eyes were holden, and then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And then presently it says, in Luke 24, verse 44, he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. And do remember that the risen Christ is now endorsing what he said before his death. I say that because there is one system of interpretation that says that Christ only endorsed the Old Testament scriptures because he was a Jew, he, he didn't know, he was brought up at Nazareth, and he endorsed just the common opinion. But he is no longer the Jew brought up at Nazareth here. He's the conqueror of sin and death. He is the risen Christ, saying that what he said earlier, he endorses now. So that what he said in John, when he said, you have Moses and the prophets, if you believe not Moses, how shall you believe my words? He still endorses that. So he says here, he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. And that is the threefold title of the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the Ketubim, the writings whichever you like to use. It means the whole book that we have today, threefold division, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the wisdom poetic verse, uh, parts like Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Psalms, Proverbs, he endorsed the lot. Then he said, Then opened he their understandings, that they might understand the scriptures. So there was the opening of the book, the opening of the eyes, the opening of the understanding. Now, shall we come back again to Acts 17 because of another word used there in the Acts 17 in connection with the Apostles' witness. Opening and alleging. Alleging. I'll give you an illustration of the meaning in two passages in the Gospels. Mark, uh, Matthew 13, 24. This word to allege. Matthew thirteen twenty-four. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, To put forth, to allege, to demonstrate, to set before you. Or if you get another passage, Mark six forty one. Mark six forty one. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. To set before them. That's to allege. Now, I, I am not in the position that Bobby, Robbie Burns said would be a very valuable thing to see myself as others see me. You know? But I've been told that I have a habit sometimes, apparently, of picking up the scriptures, like this. But if I have, I'm glad of it. I don't, I'm not sure when I do it. Somebody said, you seem sometimes to say, to put it like that. Well, I said, well, what to do? To open the book, to lift out the bit, and set it before you, so you can see it. 
When I've done that, I've done most of the things I can do. After that, you hear or you don't. You see or you don't. You believe or you don't. But until I've done these things, to reason out of the scriptures and show the way in which the book is written and the object it has in view and the way in which it proves, to not only do that, but to open the book, make it plain, and then to lift it out and set it before oh, I'm doing it. Look at that. Lift it out and set it before you. But after that, it's in the hands of the Lord. But before that, you see, a little responsibility attaches to you and to me. So we have these various references that refer to his method. Now, of course, with regard to his subject matter, that's a vast thing. But I think we can, before we finish, turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and see the way in which he summarized for us at least a few essentials with regard to this gospel that he preached. 1 Corinthians 15 Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. That's the first thing. Writing to the Galatians, he said, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, And the gospel that I preach unto you was not taught me by man, I received it by revelation. So here he says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Now he says, this is what I received. Here is the basis of all my teaching. That how that Christ died for our sins. That's the basis. You will find him expanding and going into further detail when he speaks about the cross of Christ. When he speaks about the shedding of the blood. But in the first case, Christ died for our sins. For the wages of sin is death. And then he adds, according to the scriptures. Although it's a new presentation, the gospel in the New Testament... It's in harmony with the Old Testament. For the whole of the Old Testament is leading you, step by step, to the need of a Redeemer and the fact that God was providing him. So that here we have, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There's that need, according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried. It was no fantasy. He actually died. He, d he died and was buried. And there are no more words in the English language or any other language that are so final as dead and buried. You can sit by the bedside of a dear one. You can sit up day and night. You can spend your strength and all the money you've got. And then there comes a moment when it's finished. You stand at the graveside and you're conscious that if there's ever to be any movement now it must be God himself and no one else can possibly do it. That's our hope that he will. Buried. Finished. 
Now the apostle was going to use those words later on and put a little word in front of them. That you are reckoned to have died with him and been buried with him and quickened with him and raised with him. But he has to go first before you can be joined with him. So here we're getting oh, a wonderful build up of what the apostle had to say. And he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now you won't find in the Old Testament any prophecy which says that Christ shall be raised from the dead the third day. You won't find one. But you will find one or two passages where the third day is very much associated with a rising. The first chapter of Genesis. The third day God said let the dry land appear. It did. The third day Joshua said we're going to cross over Jordan. And then comes that classical passage, which of course nobody is supposed to believe today. The three days and the three nights when Jonah was in the fish's belly. And our Saviour endorsed that. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights, so the Son of Man shall be in the heart of the earth. And somebody said, you didn't bother to believe that. That was an allegory. But he went on to say, and the men of Nineveh shall rise in the judgment. Now how can men rise in the judgment who were never there if it was an allegory in the picture? He said, oh no, the reality is three days. So you see, this man believed the book. He based his teaching upon it and he sought to be faithful. Well then he comes to us and he says, as we read in our lesson at the beginning, the day will come with them are not endure. But you mustn't alter your message. Preach the word. Herald it. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, the good tidings messenger, the two together. But whatever you do, stand for it. And may the Lord set his seal. He will. But he will not allow his word to return to him in vain. The difficulty is that we don't know why he sends it here and why he sends it there. So we do not hesitate. We preach the word to wherever we get an opportunity. And we leave the consequences with him. Our responsibility is to be faithful to that which has been entrusted to us. And if we have any difficulties in our manner or our method to get them corrected, if we can. But in the first case, not to be clever, but to be clean. For in John 13, when our Saviour turned his attention to the preparation of that little company who were going to be left on the earth after he was gone, first thing he did was to take a towel and gird himself and wash their feet. And in the tabernacle witness, no priest could ever accomplish his service in the holy place because if he bypassed the neighbour, that was waiting for him always, every day. So there's our side of it, you see. Be ye clean that bear the messengers of the Lord. And there's the other side. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, and then leave the consequences and results to him. Well, I trust that those of you who have endured this series, truly furnished, will have got some equipment, some sort of an idea. Uh, now I leave you to go on with this blessed preparation, looking to the scriptures, looking at the different ones who were preachers and teachers, discovering as far as you may their methods, the way in which they built up their messages, and then, whatever you do, don't be a slave in following somebody else's method and manner, but be yourself. You, after all, are an earthen vessel. 
And the poor, parched person who is dying for the water of life is not going to look at you and say, Oh, I've always been brought up to have royal crown derby. Well, you say you have a galley pot rather than die of thirst, I hope. So don't worry. If you can't sound your H's and you drop, drop your G's, and nevertheless be glad to hear the message of everlasting life. But of course, if you can sound your H's and sound your G's, well, it'll be all the better. So may the Lord bless those of you who for this series have been listening to one poor faulty preacher and teacher trying to give a little advice to others who may be just as faulty or possibly even more so.